This uh, principle of agency, uh, it seems to be like the center point of the entire plan is the ability, the, the inherent God-given, maybe even, well, definitely eternal principle is that we have the right to choose, right? And that is absolutely right. In fact, to live within our universe and we know that there are other worlds like unto ours and everything but there is a law that governs our entire universe and the number one law that affects everything else is not limiting others agency or their choices and letting them choose for themselves and so as we wrote our own individual plan for this earth looking at the whole earth as one and the experiences to become like him we had to interpret this big law book and to understand what requirements were of us to live within the bounds of this universe. And um, then we wrote our own and brought it before God, the most high God or the God creator of all, or what, you know, there are many, many names. I'd love to help others understand the many different names for him until he approved this plan that we had and it wasn't just the first time that it was approved. And they would ask us to go back and think about different parts and to rewrite it. But see, our agency was never limited at that point either. We were still making choices. They were giving us suggestions and showing us how we could be do something better. But we kept writing and rewriting until it was approved. Satan's plan involved ensuring that everybody would return to the father because he was going to remove agency, correct? Yes. In fact, in my memories there is he took, he had a copy of the universal law book that he went through it very quickly. And uh, it says, oh, we can do this and we'll just do this. And, you know, and then at a point where he got so many following him and everything, he says, you know, I don't think, that I like the way Heavenly Father has done things. It's just too hard. I think that if you follow me, we can unseat him and I can become the ruler of this universe. And we'll all skip this stage of pain and stuff with bodies. And we'll just all have cookies and ice cream, so to speak, you know, and we'll huh. all have big houses. But uh, it's just so false and everything that he, he stood for. It just didn't make sense. It didn't have reason to it. But he stood by it and, and convinced more and more and more people of this. Well, a couple observations about that. One is, or maybe questions. One is, given our eternal nature, how could one individual truly force everyone to the point where they could live in a way that they could all return back to Heavenly Father? Was that even a possibility? Uh, given our eternal natures it, it was not and it did not make sense to those of us that thought about it and that's the same thing we're facing today with the way they want to reorganize our world and have one world religion and one world leader that makes all of the choices for us there are so many things that don't make sense that don't add up in our minds 
there are some that are so afraid that they'd like to follow that way and like to have things taken care of. But once again, common sense or whatever light was built within us says that it doesn't work the same as on the other side. You know, I heard, I hear, heard people talking today on a, on a program, I think it was Bill Mars program. And he asked a question, you know, what's the difference between equity and equality? And I think the, the panel of people within that, on, on that was that e- equality is equality of opportunity, right? Choice. Whereas equity tries to force or require the same outcome. And I do see this that you're talking about too, where we have like these uh, universal basic income concepts where all these principles seem very satanic, which I mean is part of Satan's plan that uh, we're going to take care of everybody, uh, no matter what you do, whatever your effort is, everyone's going to get the same. It's his is kind of a plan of equity, uh, more which is really not possible. There's not enough money in the world to make everything equitable. Uh, there's some really great talks by uh, Jordan Peterson who talks about this concept of equity and how there's just a certain number of people who will always rise to the top by virtue of the work that they do and are able to do and capable of doing or committed to do versus the vast majority of others. There's a principle called the Pareto principle and P-A-R-E-T-O. It's kind of like an 80-20 rule where 20% you know, do the vast amount of, uh, let's say, wealth gathering and you just can't change it through uh, you know, legislation. You can't change it through social engineering, but people are bound and determined to make everything equitable and 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 that means placing restrictions on people who can do great things and it means uh, giving advantage to people who haven't worked or earned let's say in some situations i know people are disadvantaged but assuming certain things uh, people's efforts and their focus can change the course of their lives but to try and force it all you know it's got to be one way this 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 spirit this this influence is is pervasive today and it's it's definitely not working it's not going to work government can't do it government has failed we can make a list a mile long of things the government tried to institute along these lines and everything has failed because it goes contrary to certain eternal principles in my opinion you know i i wish i had a better voice and understanding of things like i love the way jordan peterson puts things together in common sense form and such a vast knowledge but i do know from what i saw in the pre-existence and designing our plan of salvation and everything that there were so many opportunities that even if we failed here that the only real way to completely fail at this life was to deny the holy ghost or to purposely kill somebody in innocent blood with full knowledge and so outside of that there were just opportunities and opportunities and opportunities we worked so hard to make sure that no one failed that they could repeat or do over to have the growth experiences that they needed to. And, you know, in some of these plans by what we're seeing now, 
ultimately they would like to get rid of everybody that's old and can't work. They'd like to get rid of all those that are not good workers in the factory or not capable in some way or disabled. And, you know, they don't want you to believe this on the surface because they look like bad people, but deep down inside, they want to create this perfect race similar to what Hitler did. And let's get rid of all the unmentionables. And, the, uh, uh, the useless eaters, right? Yes. And, you know, my <laughs> in my life, it's so interesting, especially this time now where I'm disabled and, and things that I've begun to work a lot with wood. And it is overwhelming to me how I love to find pieces of wood and things that most people wouldn't even use for firewood, that they would throw away and discard, that they would not look twice at and to sit there and ponder over these pieces and make them into something very beautiful and unique that will last many, many years, that there will be a living legacy of this thing that everybody else would discard. And, and I think that maybe this is part of who I came with from the pre-existence that I'm finding myself through these projects and finding out more about who I am by losing myself in this woodworking at times. Well, some of the pieces that you brought back from your trip to the Midwest were atrocious. <laughs> I mean, really ugly pieces of wood. But man, <laughs> the photos I've seen of how they, I mean, the torture that the wood went through, uh, you've kind of unlocked that beauty, you know, things that were uh, bug infested, uh, rotted out, you know, I mean, I don't even know what these pieces of wood have gone through either when they were alive or dead. And man, the colors, the beauty, it's really something else. You know, there was even some trees this summer that I saw that I grew up as a child visiting with my grandfather and walking through the forest that I remember these trees. I remember walking and talking with my grandfather there. And uh, we've had a fire come through there and destroy this whole forest. And people won't even go in there to cut them down for firewood. And I said to myself, I think there's something in this. I think there's something more to some of these pieces that are just so discarded. And I got my son-in-laws <laughs> to help me. And we, we cut down quite a bit of wood of interesting gnarly pieces. And I've made some interesting bowls out of this that, you know, I've worked with some other woodworkers and they won't even touch this wood because it has too many flaws in it and that it's not perfect. And they're looking for the perfect piece without any flaws to do what they need to. And I'm actually looking the opposite direction. I'm looking for something with more flaws and more discardedness because as I work with it, I, I feel like I embed some love into them and I feel like I embed part of who I am in them and saving them. You know, I think this is what I came with. And I, I think people that paint or, you know, do other crafts and things, even welding and stuff, you can lose yourself in what you're doing. And then you find yourself when you lose yourself in it. So that seems to be a very common uh, theme in the scriptures is it's never what you expect. I mean, I don't think that if I think if you interviewed uh, Jewish people at the time of Christ and said, what's the Messiah going to be like? They would not say, well, he'll be born in a manger, you know, born 
among animals. His father's going to be, well, his earthly father's who raised him is going to be uh, a carpenter. I don't think anyone expected Jesus to be, to be like that. I was reading, was it Luke 4? Where Jesus had come out of the wilderness. He had had his spiritual testing and communion with God. I, I personally believe that's when Jesus really knew what his mission was fully, was when he came out of that experience. And yeah. and that's certainly what, certainly what his ministry began. What was that? I, you know, I love, I've found a question in my mind over the last few years, and I've asked different people. So if the Savior were walking on the streets today, what would it look like? Would you, would you recognize it? Would you slam on the brakes and pull over and go to be in this crowd? Could you identify him walking with them? How are you taking enough time in your life to do this? How would you recognize him? And of course, some people go, oh, no, there'd be so much light around him. And he'd be, you know, he'd have angels surrounding him and it'd be this glorious thing. And that didn't happen in Jerusalem. That didn't happen in Israel over there. You know, so many didn't recognize him. They weren't ready. And are we really any different? You know, are we looking so far past or is he the one helping somebody with a tire along the road? Is he somebody that's helping somebody fix something that they didn't, you know, were so distraught and everything, you know, how would we see him? How would we notice him? So in Luke chapter four, to go back to that, that's exactly right. We see him or we see him preaching in all the synagogues or in a lot of synagogues, I should say. He returns to his hometown, Nazareth. He goes into the synagogue and he reads from Isaiah, basically the verses, and I think it's uh, verse chapter 62, to proclaim the, the good day, the good year of the Lord, to you know bind up the wounded, to heal the sick, whatever those verses are beautiful verses. And then he says to them, as he closes it, hands it back, and sits down and says, today in your ears, this prophecy or these scriptures are fulfilled. And people were outraged. You know, this, you're Joseph's son. You don't, what do you mean? And then he said, yeah, a prophet isn't accepted in his own country. He said, you know, and then he describes at least two events where uh, the two events were Elijah, the prophet, was fed by a woman who was not a Jew and then pointed out to the healing of lots of people were sick, but only Naaman, the Syrian, was healed. And people, they were outraged and took him to the edge of the cliff. I went and looked it up to see if there was actually a cliff in Nazareth. There is. And they were going to they were going to throw him off the cliff. That's the kind of reception we get from hidden people who just because of their appearance or their background or their resume or whatever we go now there that's that's not the right person in the verse that you're referring to one of the special things that gets me is he went back to capernaum to where his family was living and stuff he could do no miracles among his family because they saw him as the carpenter's son they saw him as the one that teased his sister or, or whatever the one that um ran down the streets you know and so anyway they saw him as a young boy and he he says right directly in that verse i could do no miracles among them that's right i think there's verses that say that his brothers because he had he had family members 
his brothers didn't believe he was anything special. Exactly. Uh, you know, and so we have to be, uh, the, the Lord's plan is uh, not what we expect. That's what I'm trying to point out. Uh, we go back all the way back to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and we see the Lord doesn't make things easy. He makes everything as a trial, right? He picks yeah. Jacob over Esau. Esau is the firstborn. Jacob gets the birthright. If the Lord wanted to make it simple, he just would have had Jacob come out first. But no, Esau comes out first and Jacob's holding onto his heel. And the same with Ephraim, Ephraim and Manasseh. Uh, Joseph wants Manasseh to get the blessing because he was the firstborn. But Jacob, who's giving the blessing, says, no, Joseph, I know what I'm doing. Manasseh is a great man, but it's supposed to go to Ephraim. So we have these, you know, violations of standards and practices all of the time. David, the shepherd boy, becoming the next king. Over and over, we see this pattern. You know, one of the great stories that I love is in Judges, and I believe it's chapter six through eight, where Gideon has an angel visit unto him and tells him that he needs to go out and do these great things for the Lord. And he says, who am I? I am the least of my brothers in my father's house. And uh, you know, the Lord doesn't pick somebody with crowns and worldly things with them. He often picks the lowly one to do his work and things and I often think, well, that is so similar to the Savior and so similar to the temperament as I have been with him and stuff that there is nothing that he wouldn't do. In fact, he says, there's nothing I haven't done that my father has done. So we know that in following his father's footsteps that he done, you know, I mean, it's just, it's hard to, hard to think in my mind of these steps to follow, to be like his father. And we're trying to follow in those steps, you know. Well, we go back to this foreordination idea and what we're prepared to do. We read that some of the church the church leaders, they're foreordained, they're prepared for those specific callings. And just for people to know, we have most, for the most part, lay members who hold the leadership positions in our wards and in our stakes. Only at the highest levels of the church when they're working full-time is there some kind of a minimum i'll call it a, a modest stipend paid for full-time but for the vast vast majority of of positions in the church these positions are filled by lay members they're not paid not a paid clergy and these people get called you'll, you'll have a visiting authority from the church headquarters can be a 70, which is a general authority or a, an apostle, they go out and visit and they are supposed to replace, let's say every 10 years for a stake president, every four or five years for a bishop. And that's done more by a local leader with the uh, permission of the church headquarters. But, uh, you know, they, they very carefully consider who they're supposed to call. And uh, there's a They'll interview people and they'll wait until they get a spiritual impression about what to do, I believe, on many, if not most occasions. But let's read Alma 13. It says, uh, verse 2, And those priests were ordained after the order of his son, in a manner that thereby the people might know in what manner to look forward to his son for redemption. So the purpose here of these priests, this is, of course, under the law of Moses still. This is before the birth of Jesus Christ. The law of Moses was completely in effect. 
They had priests, and they're supposed to point them to Jesus Christ and to the redemption. They knew about having a Savior. They knew about this before he was ever born. It goes on to say, though, here's the key verse, verse 3. And this is the manner after which they were ordained, being called and prepared from the foundation of the world, according to the foreknowledge of God, on account of their exceeding faith and good works, in the first place being left to choose good or evil, therefore they having chosen good and exercising exceedingly great faith, are called with the holy calling, yea, with that holy calling which was prepared with and according to a preparatory redemption for such. So the Lord looks on as he told Samuel, or in the book of Samuel, I think it's First uh, Samuel 16, 7, the Lord looks on the heart. He's not looking at position, prestige, uh, worldly accomplishments, your resume. He's looking for people who have exercised faith and good works, understanding and know the Savior. This is the most important part. And how do, how do you get that, Sean, right? Unless you've been through the fire of affliction or challenges. Uh, you, you don't, you know, it isn't, it isn't uh, those that have had the easy road, typically. 